and welcome to the Neurodegenerative Disorders edition of Sightlines podcast. In this month's podcast, we'll be highlighting and discussing the current Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease landscapes and discuss hot topics from the Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease conference in Gothenburg, Sweden, which took place in March. First off, I'd like to introduce myself, Ellie, and Data Monitor's CNS team, Pammy. Hi. And Summer. Hi. So could you please tell us a bit about the current landscape in each of these indications? Summer, can you start us off? Yeah, so um, all the marketed therapies for Parkinson's currently are symptomatic treatments, which mostly treat the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, so tremor or rigidity, um, which normally occur in around stage three of Parkinson's disease. Um, and these symptoms are caused by a loss of dopaminergic neurons. Um, so the dominating treatment is still levodopa immediate release, which is the standard of care, which was first approved in 1975. And it's commonly prescribed as the initial medication when motor symptoms first start because it's cheap, um, it's safe and it's very effective as well. It's one of the most potent therapies in the neurology space. Um, and levodopa also crosses the blood brain barrier um, where Dopamine decarboxylase converts it to, dop converts it to dopamine, and so it replaces lost dopamine. Um, it's formulated in a pill with carbidopa, um, which um, aims to prevent the nausea and vomiting produced by levodopa alone, and it enables delivery of higher doses of levodopa to the brain. Um, so, but some patients will start on alternatives, for example, dopamine agonists or MAOB inhibitors, which is thought to have less potency and more risk of side effects. But they're good alternatives, particularly for um, younger younger patients who can withstand side effects. Um, so, despite levodopa being the most potent therapy for motor features, it is also inevitably associated with motor complications. So uh, these are referred to as wearing off, which is time with uncontrolled involuntary movement, which are called uh, dyskinesias, um, basically where the treatment stops working. So the efficacy of levodopa increases in a dose-response relationship, but as the dose uh, increases, so does dyskinesia, um, so the treatment is hampered. So over time, levodopa tends to relieve symptoms for a shorter and shorter amount of time. Um, there are many medications that are aiming to address these problems. For example, alternative levodopa formulations, dopamine agonists, uh, COMPT inhibitors, A2A agonists and amantadine. Um, for the more advanced complications, more invasive methods can be used to control motor fluctuations, such as duopa, which is a carbidopa levodopa gel, which is directly um, delivered to the intestines via a pump, um, and also deep brain stimulation is another option. But all these therapies are still associated with um, residual disability. Um, so there's also non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which include a uh, loss of independent ambulation and cognitive, cognitive impairment, um, which is associated with hallucinations and psychosis. And um, these symptoms are major contributors to institutionalisation and mortality. Um, so the development of non-motor symptoms is also associated with, with prescribed medication. So do dopaminergic treatment is associated with hallucinations and psychosis uh, in advanced PD. Um, 
the only current treatment available for, for hallucinations and psychosis is Acadia's Nuplazid, which is not yet available in Europe, but it is available in the US. And this tends to only work well on a, in a subset of patients. So in trials, the, the difference between placebo and treatment was counted for by a very small group of patients who had a very profound effect. So they would kind of can be completely, they would completely respond to it. Um, but many patients don't respond to nuplicid at all. So there's not really people who have a modest effect um, to nuplicid. So there's a lot of unmet needs that are, um, remain. So as I said, all the currently marketed drugs are symptomatic treatments. Nothing stops the progression of the disease. Um, so Parkinson's patients will continue to have persistent motor complications and non-motor features even with current treatment. And particularly persistent off time represents a significant unmet need. Dyskinesias lack a well-tolerated oral treatment. Um, Amantadine, or the brand name Recovery, is the only compound approved for dyskinesia at the moment, um, but it's frequently associated with debilitating adverse effects. Um, and cognitive impairment also lacks an effective treatment, despite the approval of uh, residuline as elective for PD dementia, um, and a broadly effective treatment for hallucinations that does not worsen underlying Parkinson's features is also urgently needed, as well as uh, treatments for, for gait and balance. Um, so I'll just give a brief overview of the of the pipeline. Um, there's quite a few, it's quite extensive at the moment, there's a lot of therapies in late stage development. Um, in, the, in the near future, Duropa will potentially experience direct competition from less invasive subcutaneous infusions, which will hopefully avoid um, the risks and tolerability issues associated with surgery. Um, Abvi's Abvi 951, Supernus's Apimorphine Infusion Pump and Neuroderm's NDO612 are competing um, in, in, in that space. And there's also Amnil's IPX203, which is a novel oral formulation of both immediate release and extended release carbidopa levodopa, um, which aims to provide a rapid onset effect and more uh, sustained duration um, than carbidopa levodopa immediate release. Um, this was actually an NDA was submitted to the FDA in August last year for that one. Um, and then other promising therapies include Anavex's Anavex 273, which targets Parkinson's dementia, which and that's in phase two development. And there are a few combination therapies also in, in development. But most notably, there are a few potentially disease modifying uh, treatments in development, um, which I will touch on more a bit, a bit later. OK, um, great overview of the Parkinson's landscape. I'll, uh, this is uh, Pammy. I'll now talk about Alzheimer's. So as you know, Alzheimer's is a devastating disease and it burdens not only the patients, but also their loved ones, their caregivers. Um, and the class of anti-amyloid antibodies are promising because they are designed to treat a pathological hallmark of the disease, so amyloid. Um, there are currently, like with Parkinson's, <laughs> no fully approved drugs to help slow the progression of the disease, though Adjahelm and Lecambi have gained accelerated approval from the FDA on the basis of their ability to clear amyloid from the brain. So biomarker-based um, approvals, but no fully approved drugs based on your traditional clinical trials showing cognitive benefit. Adjahelm was actually the first to gain accelerated approval in 2021. 
um, but its two pivotal phase three trials had produced conflicting results. Uh, one read out positive and the other showed no benefit. So um, until the results from a third study are released, Agihelm currently has a limited market opportunity just due to issues with access. And this is because um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, um, the drug is approved in the U.S. And CMS is expected to cover about 80% of these drugs in the U.S. Um, but because Agihelm was approved via the accelerated approval pathway on the basis of biomarkers, rather than that full approval I mentioned on the basis of a clear clinical benefit, CMS will only cover anti-amyloid antibodies in the setting of a randomized controlled trial, which really limits the access. Now, Biogen's Envision trial does meet this criterion. So once that trial has completed, it's expected to read out in about early 2026. Um, they can apply for full approval if it is indeed positive. Um, so that's when they would get full access. Um, in the meantime, you know, we are looking to other late phase um, anti-amyloid antibodies and Lecambi, which has gained accelerated approval. So because of that conflicting data from Agihelm, Lecambi's Clarity AD trial has been seen as kind of the tiebreaker, um, and that's in authenticating the amyloid hypothesis, which posits that removing amyloid from the brain of early Alzheimer's patients may slow the cognitive decline resulting from the disease. Excitingly, um, ASI and Biogen, which have partnered on both Agihelm and Lecambi, which is interesting, um, they reported significantly positive results from that trial in the fall of 2022. So the tiebreaker was positive. Um, and that, that study was unequivocally positive. I mean, all statistically, statistically significant on all endpoints there um, on clinical benefit, on cognitive benefit. So that's really exciting. That's been uh, transformational for the industry. And now Lecambi has also received accelerated approval. Furthermore, it is expected to be the first anti-amyloid therapy to receive full approval, um, potentially by July. So therefore, Lecambi may be given broader access to patients in the U.S. Um, ASI is the lead for Lecambi, even though Biogen is a partner. Biogen's the lead on Agihelm, even though ASI is a partner. And then there's another late-phase anti-amyloid antibody that's looking very promising. It's Donanumab. Um, this will have a major phase three readout in the coming months. Um, with the advent of these anti-amyloid antibodies, we are really just at the start of addressing the high unmet needs in Alzheimer's disease. And previously, like Summer mentioned with Parkinson's, only a handful of symptomatic treatments in the Alzheimer's space were available, um, and they were just symptomatic. Um, so there was previously basically no hope to slow the disease progression. We're now turning a page and moving to kind of this disease-modifying therapy um, arena, which is fantastic. Um, so like Parkinson's, we do have other drugs um, that are being developed to address specific aspects of Alzheimer's, like agitation. Um, but these disease-modifying treatments have really overshadowed the news in this space because of their potential to slow disease progression. That sounds really promising for both diseases. Um, you both attended the recent Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease conference in Sweden. Can you tell me a bit about the most exciting developments from that summer? Uh, yeah, so from the Parkinson's side, most of the excitement was surrounding a newly discovered biomarker. Um, so two key biomarkers have been used up until now, had whole genome sequencing to understand the genetics of the disease and uh, dopamine imaging to understand dopamine dysfunction. Um, and the new biomarker is an 
alpha-synucleon seed amplification assay um, has recently been shown to detect misfolded alpha-synucleon in the CSS olfactory mucosa, gland biopsies, skin and the saliva of patients uh, with Parkinson's disease. Um, so for background, alpha-synucleon contributes to Parkinson's uh, pathogenesis through um, its aggregation. So it creates toxic species that mediate disruption of cellular homeostasis and, and this leads to neuronal death. Um, so it's believed that alpha-synuclein might be passed from cell to cell and it's uh, seeding the condition in, in each cell as it goes. So the development is a, it's a game changer which actually could mark a new era for Parkinson's drug development. Um, Structure and pathology of alpha-synucleon was a large focus at, of PD presentations at the conference. Um, so the difference in the structure of synuclein in different diseases, um, namely Parkinson's disease, spinal, mus spinal muscular atrophy and uh, dementia of the Lewy bodies um, was discussed frequently, as well as alpha-synucleon's kind of chameleon-like properties um, where it can polymorph. It, it's got different polymorphs depending on um, the pH environment. And the general consensus was that the assay has the potential to be a good diagnostic marker, but currently uh, less so to assess um, progression. So the, the assay needs to be improved in order to measure efficacy. Um, but more and more data are coming about and it's clear the assay will help stratify patients into trials uh, because we can see which patients express alpha-synuclein and therefore which drug trials would be useful for them. Um, so Ken Marek, who is the president and senior scientist at the Institute of Neurodegenerative Disorders, and he's an advisor at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, he believes that we should start diagnosing patients based upon their biology, so their synuclein pathology and dopamine dysfunction, um, and we should be aiming to choose treatments based on a patient's biology as opposed to their symptoms. So at the moment, most people are diagnosed um, by their clinical symptoms. So essentially, he, his team believes that if a patient has synuclein in their brain, they have PD, whether or whether or not they, they end up developing uh, clinical symptoms. Um, so th this isn't really a new concept. You, you know, you've got cancer and cardiac disease. These are all defined, um, diagnosed based on, on biology. So. Previous studies have shown that alpha-synuclein assays performed on CSF distinguish people with Parkinson's disease from healthy controls and um, with high sensitivity and specificity. Um, but large scale studies were needed to confirm these results. So Ken's team, um, who was involved in the PPMI study, which is Parkinson's Progression uh, Markers Initiative, uh, which was a cross-sectional study of 1,123 par Parkinson's patients. Um, they all had different genetic cell groups, so some had uh, GABA mutations and some had LARC2 mutations, where the, where the leucine-rich uh, repeat kinase 2 becomes hyperactive. Oh, and some of them were sporadic patients where no apparent genetic linkage um, is known, but that's about 95% of patients. Um, so for background, Parkinson's is likely caused by complex interactions between environmental and common genetic risk factors. So, for example, there are genetic variations that lead to mutations in LARC2, but if someone without the mutation is exposed to trichloroethylene, which is a common dry cleaning chemical, they can get as much of an abnormality in LARC2 expression um, as those without 
the, these genetic variants. So in the PPMI study, the proportion of patients with positive alpha-synuclein acid results was highest for the GABA uh, Parkinson's patients, um, which was 96% uh, of patients, followed by sporadic Parkinson's patients, and it was lowest for the LARC2 Parkinson's patients. There was only 67% of patients who tested um, positive for alpha-synuclein. And among the clinical features, hyposmia, which is a reduced sense of smell, was the most robust predictor of, of a positive alpha-synuclein result. So 97% of patients with hyposmia tested positive for alpha-synuclein compared to 63% of those without hyposmia. So, and, and another key finding is that uh, prodromal and non-manifesting carriers had evidence of abnormal alpha-synuclein aggregation before other detectable clinical or biomarker changes. So these type of data can be used to identify different biology in Parkinson's patients. Those with LARC2 mutations who are synuclein negative have a different biology to those who are synuclein positive. And the same clinical phenotype may result from more than one biology. And also a single biology may give rise to multiple clinical phenotypes. And so overall, the, the new assay should, it should make it possible to accurately diagnose disease in a patient uh, at the early stages before clinical symptoms appear and it should help to establish biomarker defined uh, at-risk cohorts which will, should play a crucial role in therapeutic development. Well, that's really interesting the sense of smell as a predictor um, and yeah biomarkers were also very heavily featured in the context of Alzheimer's disease but before I, I talk about that I'd like to first kind of give you an idea of the scope of the meeting. Um, there were over 4,000 registered participants. It had a record number of symposia since its inception in 1985, and it opened with Her Majesty, the Queen of Sweden, talking about the impact Alzheimer's disease had on her own family. Um, and people commented on the meeting being appropriately placed in Sweden because Swedish researchers have had a disproportionate effect positively um, on advancements in Alzheimer's drug development. The anti-amyloid antibody expected to gain full approval this year, Lecambi, that I mentioned, was actually born out of research on the so-called Arctic mutation um, in amyloid precursor protein. And that was a first identified in a family from northern Sweden. So that's just uh, a little background about the, the conference. It's kind of interesting. And, and people were talking about how well it was placed uh, being in Sweden this year. Um, so, OK, moving on to the importance of biomarkers, because that was also a pretty heavy focus in Alzheimer's as well. Um, and historically, about a quarter of Alzheimer's cases diagnosed did not even show the underlying pathology that defines the disease. And in primary care, more than 50% of patients are either not recognized or are incorrectly diagnosed. And that can result in unfortunate delays in treatment or care. So as such, biomarkers are critical in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, as with Parkinson's, um, especially in the context of anti-amyloid antibody therapies becoming available to patients. And that's given the neuropathological changes, they can actually start decades um, before the first clinical presentations of the disease. So it's the disease is changing in your brain well before people even notice symptoms. Um, so during the conference, Dr. Liana Apostolova she detailed the current understanding of Alzheimer's biomarkers, highlighting the 2018 so-called ATN framework um, that recognizes different levels of A amyloid, T tau, and N neurodegeneration in the brain at different stages of the disease. So these biomarkers could be measured in bodily fluid, 
like blood or cerebral spinal fluid or CSF, or aspects of the disease pathology can show up on imaging, like PET scan or MRI, depending on what question you're trying to answer. Um, one topic that was raised during the conference is the utility of the ATN framework and whether it should be expanded or modified. But currently, the best met methodologies available to differentiate and define Alzheimer's disease, CSF and PET, they have their own limitations. So specifically, CSF biomarker evaluation is limited by its invasiveness and a reluctant sentiment around lumbar puncture, particularly in certain regions like the U.S., and it was noted several times throughout the conference that the acceptance of lumbar puncture varies from country to country. Um, obviously, this was an international conference, so we had people weighing in from all different areas. Um, um, and the procedure was generally seen as more tolerable in Europe and Canada. Um, but there, there seemed to be a push to make CSF more accepted everywhere, given the importance of this in measuring biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. Um, so alternatively, Amyloid and tau PET may be used, but these modalities are limited by their expense and by their availability. And on that point, there are currently three radio tracers approved to detect beta amyloid distribution in the brain by PET scan, and one tracer approved in the United States. So we may be a bit ahead of Parkinson's um, with, in terms of biomarkers. Additionally, Dr. You know, getting the biomarkers is one thing, but Dr. Apostolova concisely mapped these biomarkers over the course of disease progression, and that was really interesting. So you can see where exactly these bio, these different and very specific biomarkers are showing up as the disease progresses. So the first changes to show up in the brain are abnormalities in the CSF or plasma, and those are measures of beta amyloid in CSF or plasma. These are then followed by abnormalities in amyloid PET imaging, which in turn is followed by abnormalities in phosphorylated tau in CSF or plasma. Then there are changes in tau PET, after which indications of brain atrophy start to appear on MRI imaging. So, remarkably, all of these changes that I just mentioned occur in the preclinical, start to occur at least in the preclinical stage of the disease. That is where there is no measurable cognitive deficit. This is before symptom onset. So because of this, the early and accurate detection of symptoms and pathology of Alzheimer's disease by clinicians is really fundamental to the management of the disease. Now, with that in mind, there is a need to identify cost-effective biomarkers, and that can be, you know, cost-effective biomarkers that are more easily and affordably obtained. And emerging technologies to measure beta amyloid and tau in the blood have tracked well with disease severity. So that was another hot topic was blood-based biomarkers. That's something everybody's talking about. Blood-based biomarkers are able to discriminate Alzheimer's from other diseases, and they can really change the way we approach Alzheimer's disease since they have the potential for widespread use and may be used to monitor the disease over time as well as predict treatment effect. Effective plasma biomarkers can also lower the cost to run early Alzheimer's studies. Um, and lessen the clinical trial burden on patients. So they don't have to go to an imaging site. They don't have to get a spinal tap. They can actually just do a regular blood test that's routine, that's done all the time. Um, their availability may broaden access to clinical trials since blood tests, you know, like I said, it eliminates the need for traveling to a site. Um, and this approach can reach a wider geographic footprint. It can enable screening measures to target a more diverse patient population. So that's something that's frequently talked about with these trials. And um, when you have the burden of traveling very far or certain costs, you know, you want something that's cheaper, not just to broaden access generally, but also to improve, help improve diversity and inclusion in these trials. 
Um, and I also noticed that the advent of plasma biomarkers was the theme raised at last year's Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease, or CTAD, conference. Very specifically, plasma PTAU 217 is emerging as a promising biomarker that may be useful in identifying amyloid-positive individuals and maybe a good predictor of cognitive decline. So that's kind of cool that you're using a tau marker to look at amyloid, as we just mentioned with, um, as I just mentioned with Dr. Apostolova's presentation, amyloid occurs first and tau second, so it's not surprising, but it is cool that you can knock both of them out with one biomarker potentially. And Eli Lilly is already implementing plasma P-tau 217 as a screening tool in clinical trials. However, Concerns have been raised regarding the implementation of these biomarkers and how comfortable primary care physicians would be with interpreting biomarker assessments. So there are, um, you know, some caveats to these, but it is still a very exciting time. And, and I would agree with Summer that biomarkers were kind of really an exciting development discussed a lot during ADPD. And um, were there any promising drugs or approaches discussed um, at the conference, Summer? Yeah, there were there were a lot of new interesting um, approaches. I'll just mention briefly mention some of them. So, uh, one of the speakers focused on how um, understanding the patient journey should affect symptomatic treatment approaches more. So, he explained how the Michael J. Fox Foundation had undertaken a study to understand which symptoms uh, bother patients the most about having Parkinson's disease. Um, so, two hundred no, 25,000 uh, people provided uh, information and uh, postural instability, so uh, balancing balancing falls, um, tremor, cognition and pain came out top, um, which he noted was interesting because no descriptions of PD list um, pain as a primary symptom currently. And uh, Joe Kim Tedroff, who's the CMO of Erlab explained a series of reports from the FDA's patient-focused drug development initiative, whereby patients were asked to also ask which three symptoms have the greatest um, impact on their life, and the response was quite similar. So the highest number of responses related to core motor symptoms, impaired balance and coordination, and cognitive impairment. Um, and there are no treatments specifically for uh, postural dysfunction. Um, which it doesn't respond to level dopa and it's regarded as as the main cause for increased fall rate in, in Parkinson's. And studies reported that 70% of people of people with Parkinson's have a, at least one fall a year and 39% fall recurrently. And the survival time is, of these patients is reduced a lot when patients when patients fall. Um, and cognitive function is a strong predictor of falls as well. So our lab have used this information to develop a, a a compound called uh, Primat, which is a novel cortical enhancer aiming to uh, prevent falls in PD. Um, so the phase 2B uh, trial started in the first quarter of 2022 and it's ongoing. And in the in the previous uh, phase 2A study of Parkinson's patients with dementia, Primat had no effect on tremor or rigidity or uh, bradykinesia, which are the hallmark symptoms of uh, Parkinson's, but it did have an effect on um, postural dysfunction um, and, and cognition, for which there's not really um, many drugs out there at the moment for, for that specifically. Um, so um, in terms of novel neuroprotective targets, uh, targets, there are a few presentations on early stage drugs that block the NLRP3 inflammasome. So inflammasomes are multi-protein formulations present inside of 
cells in your body that can amplify the immune response uh, to damage or, or a pathogen. And researchers reported that alpha-synuclein can promote the activation of inflammasomes in the immune cells of the brain, uh, the micro, microglia. And uh, Roche's cell noflast is being developed to prevent the assembly and activation of NLRP3, um, as is um, Epicense RRX001, uh, which is actually a, a repurposed drug. It's in phase three development at the moment in, in the oncology field. Um, it's still in preclinical development for Parkinson's, but it's um, multimodal mechanism of action if differentiate it from, from other drugs that are also targeting NLRP3. Um, so the companies are hoping that uh, targeting the inflammasome could have a disease modifying effect, although it's this is yet to be yet to be established. Um, and Musa Yudim's team at Yudim Pharmaceutical has hypothesized and developed a novel approach towards uh, neuroprotection and neurorestoration with the development of multi-target drugs which target an array of pathological pathways, each which is believed to contribute to the cascade that ultimately leads to, to neuronal cell death. So his presentation focused uh, on examples of novel multi-target ligands um, which were M30, M30P and HLA20, which combine cholinesterase and monoamine oxidase inhibitory moieties into an iron chelator um, radical scavenger compound. Um, and these have both antidepressant and anti-Parkinson's activities, and they're also potentially um, disease modifying. Um, and uh, for a different approach, uh, Gazine Paul Vies from Lund University discussed cell replacement therapy and a potential new cell source for transplantation. So cell replacement therapy is based upon three hypotheses, um, but the predominant symptoms of PD are dependent on the loss of one type of cell, which is DA, uh, dopamine neurons, and also that dopamine neurons grafted into the striatum, the target, can survive and functionally replace um, neurons. And also that chronic um, psychological delivery of dopamine to the striatum can treat dopamine responsive motor aspects of Parkinson's disease. So most clinical research is focused on the transplantation of fetal dopamine cells um, in which patients have, have showed significant improvements after transplantation in proof of principle studies. Um, however, it did take it took time to work. So the most significant effects were seen from about four years after transplantation, but it was clear that it, and it does work. Um, and some of these patients 20 years on are no longer needing to take medication. However, the, using basically aborted fetal cells is not practical or ethical um, to use in the general Parkinson's population. So um, a new a possible new source of cells um, is the human embryonic stem cells, which are more practical because they can be they can be um, produced on a large scale. They can be done in standardised conditions, and and cells are bankable. Um, so, Lund University and the University of Cambridge have just entered the first phase two to uh, phase one two clinical trial in Europe, which is the stem PED trial. Um, and safety and tolerability are the primary outcomes at this stage, but efficacy will also be evaluated um, 
including the effect on clinical features and survival of dopamine cells using PET imaging and the effect of different doses. Another possibility is to use uh, iPSC cells. Um, there's a study going on in Japan on this at the moment. Um, the advantage of that method is that you don't have to immunosuppress the patients. However, it's uh, it's quite a new procedure. So there's large amounts of variability and less standardization, and it's also extremely um, expensive and less efficient if you've got a large number of patients. All right. Well, that's a lot <laughs> of really interesting um, results. And uh, we've also talked about the patient-centric approach in Alzheimer's on the Alzheimer's front. Um, there were several kind of early phase, early phase results uh, and data coming from different approaches like vaccines. Um, I saw a presentation on a next-generation beta secretase inhibitor, which would be reviving um, that mechanism from the dead, um, targeting drugs targeting TREMP2, and then looking at um, kind of various aspects of neuroinflammation, as well as combination approaches and looking at amyloid and tau and different ways to do that. Um, but there was really one standout uh, kind of piece of data that came out that everyone got excited about in Alzheimer's. So I'm I'm really going to focus on that because that was um, something that really everybody was talking about, uh, referencing throughout the conference repeatedly and enthusiastically. And this was a presentation that Dr. Jessica Collins shared on BIB-80. So this is Biogen's tau-targeting anti-sense oligonucleotide. BIB-80 targets microtubule-associated protein tau, or MAPT, <clears throat> so the way it works is that tau protein is encoded by the MAPT gene, which is primarily expressed in neurons. BIB-80 is an antisense oligonucleotide, or ASO, and is designed to reduce concentrations of MAPT messenger RNA and thus reduce the production of all tau species within the CNS. And I mentioned earlier tau and amyloid beta, those are the two pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So here we are targeting, you know, the disease, the pathological hallmark of the disease and potentially disease-modifying therapy approach. Um, in, patient, in patients with Alzheimer's disease, you know, tau protein forms tangles and the, these accumulate, they promote cell death in areas of the brain involved in cognition. So Dr. Collins described um, tau biomarker results from a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase 1b study. This evaluated four ascending doses of intrathecally administered BIB-80 in patients with mild Alzheimer's disease. Notably, the doses were administered monthly or quarterly over the course of three months. So patients either received four doses or two doses, and all cohorts were followed by a six-month post-treatment observation period, which was then followed by a long-term extension during which all patients were dosed quarterly over the course of the year. So we have three months dosing followed by six months operation and then a year-long open-label extension where everyone gets the drug. Now, quarterly dosing is actually particularly important here given the burdensome route of administration. In fact, she was asked by an audience member about the clinical burden to patients of intrathecal dosing and Dr. Collins responded that they are looking at quarterly to biannual dosing regimens in the ongoing phase two study for that reason. Um, now, onto the results. <laughs> During the study, uh, patients on placebo maintained relatively stable levels of CSF tau, um, and that would be expected. Whereas patients on BIB-80 demonstrated a dose-dependent reduction in CSF tau over the course of the three-month treatment period. And in the two highest dose cohorts, CSF tau continued to decrease after treatment was discontinued. So a sustained response was seen after treatment was stopped 
I should note, however, that patients on the lower doses, they did see a rebound in their CSF tau levels once treatment stopped. And these effects were consistent with both measures of CSF tau presented, and that was total tau and phosphorylated tau 181. And um, that would be expected since the mechanism of action of Bivedi is to reduce production of all forms of tau protein. So with regard to tau PET imaging results, so now we're looking at aggregated forms of tau in the brain versus soluble tau in the CSF. Patients that received placebo demonstrated a slight increase from baseline in tau across the majority of brain regions assessed by PET, which is consistent with natural disease progression. For patients um, that are treated with Bib80, those on the highest dose showed a slight reduction in tau burden across all brain regions. Now, the magnitude of effect wasn't huge, but Dr. Collins pointed out that it was similar to what's been seen with anti-amyloid therapy, which is given over the course of 18 months in those trials. So these were seen in just six months in this phase one trial. The lower doses also showed trends of improvement over placebo. So this is remarkable because we are seeing what appears to be not a slowing of tau accumulation with treatment, but rather a possible reversal of tau accumulation. And as I mentioned, this, this is a phase one study. So this is a small study. That's <laughs> good to keep in mind. It enrolled less than 50 patients, but that, that didn't stop this news from spreading like wildfire during the conference. Um, when a conference attendee raised concern about, concerns about safety, Dr. Collins pointed out that the drug was well tolerated with no serious adverse events seen in the trial and that all patients completed the dosing interval. Interestingly, um, Adam Flesher, a neurologist with Eli Lilly, actually got up and remarked on Biogen's unexpected results, wanting to know more about how this could happen. Um, the data suggests that reducing tau protein production results in a breakdown of tau accumulated in the brain. So to that, um, Dr. Collins suggested that if you are slowing production, then the body's natural clearance mechanisms can kick in. But certainly, more work will be done to understand these striking results, as well as the impact of measures um, of cognition, so how does this measure, how does this impact clinical, um, you know, outcomes, and then also neuroinflammation, how does this influence that downstream um, neuroinflammation? And indeed, there will be much more anticipation for the ongoing phase two study, which um, no doubt will have much higher expectations now. That's really interesting, Pammy. Um, and how do you think these markets have changed in recent years? Okay, so yeah, so you're asking about recent years. I'm actually going to take you back a little bit further to put this into context. So in 1906, we saw, because I mean, this was brought up a lot during the conference. And in 1906, it's commonly cited, that's where we first saw amyloid plaques and tau tangles distinctly in the brain of an Alzheimer's patient. But it wasn't until the late, until the 1990s, so I think 1906 to 1990s, that we got our first Alzheimer's drugs. However, they were only symptomatic, masking, not slowing the disease. So now more recently, just two years ago, we approved our first anti-amyloid treatment. This comes on the heels, by the way, of several failed, high-profile failed anti-amyloid drugs in the past decade. And nearly everyone said these disease-modifying treatments were a graveyard. 10 years ago, we couldn't even diagnose the disease until the patient died by looking at the brain post-mortem and confirming the presence of amyloid. Now we can see amyloid deposition before patients even have cognitive deficit, before they even have any symptoms. I like the way it was put actually by a presenter at the conference who said, we are witnessing the foundation of the first disease modifying therapeutic target in Alzheimer's disease. So 
To your question, recent changes have, le have led to success by targeting the right patient at the right time. And that's been cited quite a bit in this space. As I mentioned, we've seen so many high profile failures in the past decade, but these failures have really helped to refine the drug development process by honing in on the correct patient population. First, by moving amyloid targeting drug development into earlier stages of the disease, where the patients aren't deemed to be, quote, you know, too far gone for the disease to be useful. This is the right time part of that equation, the right patient, the right time. Secondly, by limiting the inclusion criteria to only, and now the drug labels, to only enroll patients or treat patients who have biomarker confirmed amyloid burden. You're using anti-amyloid antibodies. Patients that don't have amyloid are not going to respond to those drugs. About a third of early Alzheimer's patients are amyloid negative. And more recently, in, historically in these studies. So more recently, um, we're employing tau biomarkers to identify the best population. So this takes care of the right patient aspect. That, that presentation by Dr. Apostolova showing how these biomarkers shift and change over time. We're really learning more about this and refining everything with every failure and every success to find the right patient in the right time and the right drug. So then also we wanted to evaluate what type of beta amyloid to target. So solanezumab previously targeted mono, monomeric amyloid rather than the toxic oligomeric species or amyloid plaques that we're seeing with the current drugs that are working. Um, and additionally, work has been done in identifying the appropriate dosing reg regimen for drugs that elicit negative side effects. So, you know, more seems better, but titration does help to mitigate area or amyloid imaging related um, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities for certain drugs that might um, create more of that side effect. So today we have the first disease-modifying therapies becoming available to patients at early stages of the disease. The clinical trial landscape is adapting to incorporate the latest biomarkers, which is helping to validate their use, by the way. Biomarkers are increasingly becoming available outside of the clinical trials arena, and novel biomarkers are emerging. We now need to work on delivering emerging treatments to four patients today. So there was a lot of discussion at this conference about the implementation of these drugs, and one focus is on communicating the impact of these drugs with patients and the wider community, so kind of getting the word out there. And Dr. Jeff Cummings from the University of Nevada in Las Vegas gave a talk on um, the hot topic of clinical meaningfulness uh, at the meeting. So he went into some detail about what matters most to patients, a notion that has been echoed by other neurologists, rather than the focus on validated and highly cumbersome outcomes that are used currently in clinical trials. Yeah, the statistical significance on the clinical trial outcomes mean one thing, but you know what matters to the patient? And parts of Dr. Cummings' talk mirrored a presentation, so I mentioned this um, by Susan Hendricks, that emphasized the delay in milestones and time as an outcome. So that, that was really interesting. She gave a, a whole talk around that and how to define that, which I thought was fascinating. Um, he emphasized the use of delayed milestones to communicate the effect of disease-modifying therapies to prospective patients. These can include things like maintaining independence and driving for a longer period of time, as well as maintaining personal identity for longer. One of the things that patients fear the most is the loss of their own biography. Um, and that's a phrase he used, the loss of their biography. I, I kind of think that's an eloquent way to put it because patients no longer know who they are. And many patients have seen their parents go through this. So it's a really scary time and a really scary notion. So um, when asked whether something is a meaningful outcome, Dr. Cummings challenged the audience to first ask, for whom? Because that that question will be different whether you're talking to the patients or whether you're talking to the FDA or other you know individuals. 
So we've really seen an overall overhaul in the Alzheimer's landscapes from different aspects of drug development to clinical implementation in recent years. And these are just some of the changes that we've seen. So the Parkinson's disease market is, is we haven't quite got a disease model thank therapy yet. It's uh, behind Alzheimer's in that sense, um, but it has gained more, more traction and funding in recent years. We've got 11 new brands have been launched since 2015. Um, in, in what was a historically slow moving and highly generic therapy space. And two of these drugs represented the first agents for specific subgroups. So um, for example, psychosis. Some of these were uh, existing classes, some of them were, were reformulations. Um, so more and more drugs are aiming to target these unmet needs. And in the infusion therapies are also a new development. So, um, You've got Duopa, which is marketed, and there's also quite a few in, in clinical trials at the moment. Um, but when uh, asked about the patient experience and how that has changed compared to 20 years ago, one speaker stated that actually not too much has changed except for patients are often now referred earlier for deep brain stimulation therapies and that patients also tend to have less violent dyskinesias now um, compared to, to what he used to observe. Um, Obviously, disease-modifying therapies are um, quite a novel, novel development that's been around in recent years. Um, many companies are investigating different ways of going about this, um, including immunotherapy, gene therapy, cell therapy, and also repurposing drugs like anti-diabetic drugs. So, in this regard, um, and regarding the new alpha-nucleon assay, Parkinson's uh, market is probably in the position that Alzheimer's um, market was in about 10 years ago and um, the majority of these disease modifying therapies in the pipeline target alpha-synucleum. So I'll just give you a, a brief overview of some of the therapies that are in the latest stage of development at the moment. Um, so the therapy with the most data released currently is Prathena's immunotherapy prasinzumab, um, which is a monoclonal antibody directed against aggregated alpha-synucleum. The trial actually failed the primary endpoint in the phase two study, um, which was based upon the reduction of non-motor symptoms. But Pathina's CEO explained that the investigators realised retrospectively that due to the early stage Parkinson's patients used in the study, the primary endpoint was, was kind of was unsuitable, really, because non-motor symptoms are typically exhibited less frequently in, in earlier uh, PD. Um, however, in a pooled analysis, there was significant reduction in, in motor symptoms and efficacy signals that were evident in other secondary and exploratory endpoints. So um, in May 2021, Prathina began a phase 2B trial, which is enrolling 525 people. Um, and the primary endpoint will focus on, on motor symptoms this time, and data are expected in, in 2024. And the second main immunotherapy study for alpha-synuclein was the phase two SPARC study, which was conducted by Biogen, um, which had less encouraging results. Their, their drug, uh, Synpaymbab, um, missed um, the primary and secondary endpoints, and it's, and it's since been suspended. Um, Biogen actually never released the full results of, of this one yet. Um, but antibodies aren't the only option for targeting alpha-synuclein. Um, the antibodies developed so far are, are not yet specific to certain forms of alpha-synuclein or specific cell locations. Um, so enterin uh, ENTA1 is 
a synthetic version of squalamine, a molecule originally discovered in the liver and gallbladder of the dogfish shark. And it's a, a potent inhibitor of alpha-synuclein aggregation. Um, but entering are focusing their trials on Parkinson's associated gut symptoms, which normally occur um, a long time before the onset of motor symptoms. And they've had very promising phase two results so far. Um, uh, Anavis's, Anavis Bio's uh, butane tab is also a small molecule um, and it suppresses the, suppresses the translation of the mRNAs of alpha-synuclein and also um, tau. It's also in development for, for uh, Alzheimer's as well and, um, and also other neurotoxic aggregating proteins. So it, it affects these all at once. Um, so butane tab is the only drug so far to show improvement in cognition in Alzheimer's patients and motor function in Parkinson's patients. And it's currently in phase three development for both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So targeting alpha-synuclein is not the only way to develop a disease-modifying therapy. Other therapies in development include other targets such as LARC2, or GABA or mitochondria, and also some are using indirect approaches such as targeting autophagy, inflammation and iron chelation. So leading the pack in the race to develop a LARC2 inhibitor is a biotech firm called Denali Therapeutics with its novel asset DNL151. And phase results, phase one results showed good safety and tolerability plus strong target engagement. And future development plans have recently been announced. So the first trial will be called the Lighthouse Study, um, which is a phase three trial assessing 400 patients with LARC2 mutations. The second study, the phase 2b LUMA study, will enrol 640 patients without the genetic variation in the LARC2 gene. So both trials will be assessing whether there's a decrease in the rate of progression in treated individuals. And where do you think these markets will be in the next decade? Yeah, so I can give you kind of like a laundry list of changes that I would expect or perhaps hope <laughs> to see in the Alzheimer's disease space in the coming decades, starting with uh, what I might expect in the nearer term. So in the nearer term, I want or expect to see broader access to now available anti-amyloid therapies, um, optimization, optimizing diversity and representation in clinical trials, and in evaluating differential effects on biomarkers. So how biomarkers are different, um, like show different differences um, in different subpopulations of patients, um, breaking the stigma that memory loss is a natural part of aging and really encouraging patients and primary care physicians to interrogate such symptoms further as disease modifying treatments become increasingly available for early stage Alzheimer's patients. Um, in the midterm, I would love to see the blood-based biomarkers hit the market and thus to also see improved diagnosis of the disease and wider access to available treatments. It would be great to integrate more diagnostic evaluations beyond specialty clinics and into primary care um, with the pipeline. I'm excited to see the evaluation and readout for a diverse array of mechanisms to treat Alzheimer's disease. Um, so like Summer said, just targeting more than just, you know, an Alzheimer's, just these uh, tau and amyloid um, and symptomatic treatments, but seeing a lot more targets going after neuroinflammation and different aspects of the disease. Um, I would also like to see more robust data come out on the utility of things like vaccines, antisense therapy, and tau targeting drugs as well. Longer term and maybe towards the end of the de decade, 
Um, I think we can expect multimodal approaches and combination therapies to maybe emerge. Um, hopefully, there will be increasing availability of tau and, like I said, neuroinflammatory targeting approaches, as well as small molecule disease modifying therapies. So that's something that we're seeing in the pipeline. It would be great to see those succeed. Um, obviously, that's less burdensome than injectables. Um, I would hope to see drugs with improved clinical outcomes um, further slowing or even stopping. I mean, we talked about the minimal clinically important difference um, or maybe even, dare I say, reversing clinical you know, cognitive decline. That would be really nice to see a greater magnitude of effect on these drugs. Um, personalized medicine approaches targeted to specific patients, further providing physicians with a much larger kind of toolkit for treatment of their patients. Um, data from current treatments on patients with preclinical Alzheimer's, so before any clinical symptoms arise to come out and be positive, and then the potential to screen all elderly individuals for treatment with disease-modifying therapies. So actually implementing a prevention strategy, that would be great. Um, and of course, all of this attention garnered by the advent of these new medicines should be coupled with the continued efforts to promote healthy lifestyle choices. So that is kind of my Alzheimer's wish list for the next decade. Um, as you can see, this is a really exciting time to be in this space, and we really have a lot to look forward to here. Yeah, so in Parkinson's, this is also what I'm hoping will um, happen in the future. So um, there's a hope that there'll be more some some disease modifying approaches, um, whether this is gene therapy, uh, neurotrophic factor administration, cell replacement therapy, or alpha-synuclein therapies, or, or any other disease-modifying uh, therapy. Um, the, the new synuclein seeding assay brought about a lot of optimism about diagnosing and hopefully treating Parkinson's very early on in, in disease progression before, before any of these clinical symptoms um, arise. Um, but the assay does need to be developed and studied more in order to determine how people with different synuclein pathologies progress um, we need a quantitative and linear measure of neuronal loss. Um, and as Perry said, it won't be a one size fits all situation. We'll need to define kind of each person's treatment. So it'll be very individualized um, due to the heterogeneity of the between between individuals. Um, and to fully lever leverage the, the potential of the assay, the test will need to, uh, to be performed in blood rather than the CSF. Um, so for practical reasons. And the, the new biomarker should allow for stratification of patients into trials, and which should hopefully lead to less trial failures and um, better outcomes um, when they come to try these drugs. Um, and eventually, artificial intelligence could be used to, to scan biobanks to determine who is likely to, to develop Parkinson's. Um, and one speaker also mentioned how uh, education is important. So. Most patients have had P uh, Parkinson's for about three years before they're before they're diagnosed. So patients and physicians need to be more educated to understand um, the very early symptoms and warning signs of Parkinson's uh, for early diagnosis, so that they don't wait until they've got kind of an obvious tremor before seeking help. Um, and it would also be good to be able to target alpha synuclein inside the cell, um, which will need a different approach to to the antibody antibody approach. Um, so targeting the actual generation of the alpha-synuclein as well. Um, in 20 years time, we may face the same problem that Alzheimer's is facing now. So is this effect uh, clinically, is this drug clinically significant? Uh, significant? So is it worth paying for? Um, 
but we'll have to wait and and see and learn from what's happening in Alzheimer's. Um, as, and it's also important to pay attention to the other pathologies as well as alpha-synuclein. Um, so combination therapies, multi-target drugs are also a good option going forward. Some multi-target therapies have the potential to be disease-modifying. Um, but aside from disease-modifying therapies, um, symptomatic therapies are still needed. So new symptomatic therapies will focus on the, the unmet needs within the treatment market, such as um, treatment for cognitive impairment, um, dementia, hallucinations, and falls, uh, apathy, and dyskinesias. And it's likely that levodopa will remain the standard of care for symptomatic treatment, um, but hopefully there will be an increased uptake in these continuous subcutaneous therapies, which should help to provide better coverage of our mood symptoms. And that concludes this month's podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Goodbye.